usually always feels like us against them. It's never us against each other, you know? <laughs> and I think the thing that we're always fighting for is preservation of the initial concept. Because if anyone's ever done a project in Hollywood, you know, you start out with a drama and you end up with a romantic comedy, you know? <laughs> Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Okay, Isaac, as ever, we heard a stranger's voice in our cold open, which was edited this week by Morgan Flannery, which is relevant because of who your guest was. Yes, indeed. And our guest this week is the great Joy McMillan. She is a film editor best known for her longstanding collaboration with the director, Barry Jenkins. And she most recently was part of the editing team on his television show, Underground. And she has the much-hyped film Zola coming out soon. Isaac, one thing that I love about working on this show with you is that you, week by week, reveal the depths of your nerdiness You're the rare sort who can actually have an informed conversation about film editing, which is not something you do for a living. It's not even really that closely related to what you do. Well, that's very sweet of you to say, Ruman. So thank you. I I feel like this is like one of the advantages of being a dilettante or a magpie or whatever word for generalist we want to use. I mean, but I do think it is related to what I do in one respect, which is that if you're writing about an art form and I'm writing more and more about film these days because of the method book and stuff like that, it's helpful to know as much about how it's made as you can and how creative decisions happen and where they are in the process and stuff like that. And so So that's when I started getting interested in editing. I mean, the world of film is almost endlessly complicated. There's dozens of different departments. But I feel like if you want to write about and understand film, understanding like what the cinematographer does and what the editor does is is really important. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I actually think that doesn't make you a dilettante. It makes you a very responsible interviewer. Aw, shucks. So I want you to tell me about Joy, who she is, how her name came across your radar, all that good stuff. Well, first off, our regular producer Cameron and I were just talking about, you know, people, kinds of jobs we haven't had on the show that we're interested in. And we were both really interested in film editors. And I, I just think they have a really important job. Like they, they do a lot to determine what the viewer actually sees, but most people don't pay attention to what they do. And usually that's a good thing because you actually want it to be invisible, which she talks about during our interview. And of course, I think Barry Jenkins is of his generation, one of the most important filmmakers who's who's rising up right now. And he's really created this signature style and in particular, this signature rhythm that I think is really interesting. Um, Sort of like how Scorsese has this sort of signature rhythms. And both of those directors have an editor they work with over and over and over again. And so I was just intrigued to learn more about what that collaboration is like. Well, like I said, I love your nerdiness. I look forward to hearing this conversation. And our Slate Plus subscribers are getting a little something extra this week, I think. Yes, indeed. On Slate Plus, you can listen to Joy McMillan talk about cutting her teeth in the hectic, overwhelming world of editing reality television. I love that kind of high-low mix. Sounds, (laughs) Sounds very juicy. And really, juicy is what Slate Plus is all about. It's the good stuff, like bonus episodes of your favorite Slate podcasts, like ad-free podcasts at all times. 
Truly though, Slate Plus members get to feel virtuous for supporting the great journalism being done by all of our colleagues. If you're not a Slate Plus member, it couldn't be simpler. It's $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's listen in on Isaac's conversation with Joy McMillan. Joy McMillan, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. So let's just start on the most basic level. You are an editor for film and television. What is it that an editor actually does? (laughs) It's such a good question. It's one of those things that's really hard to put into words because we're involved in so many different aspects of the project. And I think that's kind of one of the things that makes it really hard to like point your finger and say, that's exactly what an editor does. It was funny. I was just talking to a group of UCLA kids a few days ago, and I was telling them how there's a moment in Beale Street where um, the characters, Daniel and Fani, are just having this long conversation. And one of the tricky things to do was to hide my edits to make the conversation feel as fluid as possible. And someone tweeted about it. And they're like, there's this section in the film where it's just one long camera take, no cuts. And I was like, well, actually, there were, <laughs> there were a few cuts in that. But as an audience member, you're so engrossed in what's happening that, you know, my job is for you not to see the cuts. And I think that's why we're almost like a curator for the audience's experience. We work with the sound department to curate the sound so the effects are exactly where they're supposed to be and you're you know you're you're scared or you're fearful or you're overjoyed and so we also work with the music department the composer so you know we make a hit you know, a music hit a line with a cut. And so at the moment you're tearing up and you're like, why? Why is there so much emotion? You know, I don't know if that's a really good a description of what an editor does. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's amazing. It's amazing. So how did you discover that editing was what you wanted to do? Good question. Um, my initial career of choice was a journalist. Like I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to work for a a really cool magazine in New York and be a writer, you know, and get like tough stories, but also fashion pieces, you know, like that was what I thought early on in high school. And then I was a part of this program called Junior Achievement. And basically what Junior Achievement is, is each high school in our district or county, I guess, selected two juniors to represent them. And so I guess your teachers voted on it. And it was me and my friend Steve Kleiman who were selected. And so the one thing that I was like, what is this junior achievement? But then my teachers were like, you get to miss a Friday, the first Friday of every month. And I was like, oh, sign me up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a great reward for your best students telling them they don't have to go to school. That totally works for me. So every Friday, you know, I'd arrive with my friend Steve and um, we would meet up with all these juniors from all these other high schools. And we had some really, really cool opportunities that we were afforded. And one of the cool things was career day. And so basically you submitted two career options that you were interested in. And mine were journalism, of course. I was hoping I'd get to go to the Orlando Sentinel because I'm from Orlando. 
And um, the other one was film because my brother Derek had just moved out to L.A. to be an actor. I was like, oh, film sounds cool, you know. I'll give it a whirl. It's my second option, though. But, of course, I didn't get my first. And so I ended up getting the second option, which was film. And we spent the day at Universal Studios. And so they took us around on the back lot. We saw all these different cool stuff. And then one of the things is, I'll never forget, they took us to, like, a post building, And they were taking us up and down the halls, introducing us to editors. And one of these editors was working on Avid, and he was cutting a show for Animal Planet. And, you know, he was really kind. To this day, I can't remember his name, but he was really kind. And he showed us all these different things he could do on the Avid. And it blew my mind because it was like, in a lot of ways, writing but with images. And so I was like, this is really cool. So after career day, I went and looked up film schools. And of course, you know, when you're like a moody teenager, like everything is so dire. (laughs) So I remember going to my parents and being like, I have to go to Chicago. This is, there's a school of the arts here and this is where artists go. And my mom was like, no, you're going to a Florida school. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how I ended up going to applying to film school at Florida State University. Um, and it was really, it was a, it's such a good program. They make you do everything. They make you do directing, producing, screenwriting. We did all the jobs when we were, when we were like the lower classmen. So we were BBEs, we were grips, script supervisors, which I really took to, but ultimately throughout the whole process, it still was editing that I was just in love with. And we got a really cool opportunity our freshman year to actually cut on flatbeds with 16 millimeter film. It was such a cool experience. I don't know if those still exist. (laughs) Do you feel like having been able to cut on flatbeds with 60 millimeter, do you think, I mean, because I imagine you're mostly working with digital now, but do you feel like that background influences the way you think about cutting? Definitely, because one of the things that I, you know, a lot of editors coming up now don't understand is that, um, you know, in film school, we just had one print to work off of, of our dailies. And so you cut one frame too many, and that's your cut now. You know, Barry said this about me, and I was like, ah, it really stuck with me. He said, you're a really thoughtful editor. And I think that definitely stems from the fact that, you know, in film school, when we had to cut those sections, you had to be really, really sure that was the cut you wanted to make because there was no Apple Z, you know? (laughs) There was no edit undo that was going to undo that cut, you know? Mm. So, yeah. So where does your process, when you're working on a film, where does your process begin? Because you're hired at the very beginning, usually, right? So like, what is the first thing you're doing on a project after you've gotten the script? Uh, One of the things I always like to discuss with the director before they go shoot is transitions. Because I feel like oftentimes transitions are something that are kind of like cobbled together. Um, because everyone was like, oh, we didn't really think about how we were going to get from point A to point B. <laughs> um, so I love to to read a script or if there's a scene that it, in the description, it seems like, you know, they're like, we're, you know, coming through the window or something's going to be shot a particular way. I like to touch base with camera to make sure like, you know, the way it's going to be shot is going to lends itself to still giving the same feeling or the same intent and purpose that was listed in the script. Um, but most of the times when I work with Barry and James, they are so, it's interesting. Um, their process is so unique 
a lot of times Barry allows himself to be informed by the set. And so um, there's not really a shot list. Like he likes to go and let the scene, you know, the set and the scene speak to him. And then he'll discuss with James how they want to shoot it. And so. Oh, interesting. So it's not like, like, like I know the Coen brothers storyboard everything religiously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you probably have like on some level, you have a cartoon of what the movie is going to look like in advance, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but, but, but Barry Jenkins doesn't even use a shot list. I didn't even, I, I didn't know that. I think on this show, they actually had to just so we were prepared because there's 10 episodes. Um, but a lot, it's of, a lot time, of material. Yeah, it's a- <laughs> Um, but on Moonlight and Beale Street, I think they are just very fluid, which is a lot different from like currently we're working on the Lion King prequel and so much of it is prep and how it's supposed to look before it goes into animation. So I think that's a little bit of a learning curve for us, but we're kind of enjoying the experience to see something evolve from storyboard to actual animation is pretty cool. So how early on are you cutting stuff? together because it's not after everything's in the can right i mean it's 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 way earlier way earlier yeah (laughs) yeah we started on this is like underground was the longest project i've been on to date i'm sure lion king prequel might trump that we'll probably trump that (laughs) well once you've got animation in there it's a whole other other. fish exactly Yeah, so we officially started shooting August of 2019, and post started that same day, and we didn't wrap post until February of 2021. Wow. Yeah, so it was a process. So you're editing the dailies. I mean, you're you're right there on that very first day, taking those dailies, editing them together. When you work with Barry Jenkins, is he in the room with you for that part of the process? Are you sort of making a first draft on your own and then presenting it to him and tinkering from there? Like what what on a nuts and bolts level are are y'all doing at that point? Yeah. So the we initially it was me and the other editor was Alex O'Flynn, and we did our first pass um, without Barry because he was still shooting. And throughout the process, when we had a cut to a place where we thought it was like, okay, he could see the lay of the land and give us feedback on it, we would send it down to him because he was shooting in Atlanta. And throughout the process, there were two breaks that they took where Barry was able to come back to LA. But it's a little tricky when you have a director that is, you know, very popular because it was like to get time with him because everyone's like, Barry's back in LA, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, But he did take the time to sit with us and to give us like the the nuts and bolts of like where he wanted to take the episode. It was a little tricky because I am used to like, you know, our last two productions, Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk, I think Moonlight was 21 days. Beale Street, I think, was 28. So I'm oftentimes used to, like, you know, doing that first pass. And then Barry, by the time that, you know, production wraps, Barry's in the, like, in the room with me and then we're working on it. But this was 116 days. And so I just had to keep going. You know, uh, episode one and actually the last episode were the first two that shot first. And so I was actually working on both episodes at the same time. And then when I got one completed and had all the dailies, I sent it down to Barry. He gave me notes on it. I would work on that. And then we just, you know, kept going until we actually had him back in the cutting room. 
So you're doing a lot of the kind of first pass on on your own, at least especially during Underground Railroad because of how the, the show is structured. So right there in that moment, you're making a lot of decisions, right? You're about how long a cut is held, which camera angle to use if they've shot something from multiple angles and stuff like that. How do you think through kind of that decision making process? Is it just very intuitive? Is it your taste? I mean, how 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 are you navigating that? Um, yeah, it's one of those things that I oftentimes allow the footage to inform me, like how long I'll be on a shot or exactly what shot to select. I can tell, I think it's because we've worked so long together. I can tell Barry and James's process and I can see the shot that they really like. Oftentimes it'll be maybe a one or it'll be maybe the second to last shot in a series where we're landing in the same spot, but they've done a different, you know, I would say a different pan across, tilt down, ending on the actor. And so it's one of those things where I'll kind of guess what I think Barry wants. And then, you know, once he comes into the cutting room, he'll be like, oh, I think one of the things as an editor, one of the best compliments a director can say is that's exactly what I would have picked. Because in a lot of ways, you are, as an editor, trying to present their vision in a way that reflects their intent. And one of the things that's so hard about what we do is, you know, there's the initial script that's on the page, then there's what's shot in production, and then there's the actual footage that we get And so one of the things I always say that directors have to come to terms with is the version on the script and the actual version that we're working on in the cutting room are different. And a lot of experienced directors know that because they've been through the process before. And so it's more about coming to terms and creating, I guess, the best film possible. And so for us as an editor, you know, we'll present a scene and sometimes a director will be like, huh, that's not how I would have started it but I like it that way. Or they'll be like, oh, you know, I actually saw it this way, so can we try it? And of course, as an editor, you always try what the director wants, but I always love when when Barry says, put it back, Joy. You were right. doesn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favorite things to hear. But it's not about being right, you know? And I think that's why it's not hard for Barry to say I was right, or it's not hard for me to say when he's right, because... Ultimately, we're in service of the film. Mm-hmm. And so we want to just make the best film or TV series possible. And so that's what we're in service to. And ultimately, that's our goal. And so, you know, it's a collaboration between the two of us. And whenever we come together on an idea, you know, I think that's when we're the most successful. That's one of the things that I love so much about collaborative creative work is the thing you're creating is the real boss, right? Exactly. It's like, it's like that's the, it, when it's going well, it, it is actually telling you what it needs. It does. And your yeah. job is to like obey that actually not, you know, the ego or whatever. Exactly. Whenever I lose sight of that, whenever I'm like in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, we're supposed to be a certain amount of time. And so I'm like trimming and, and, you know, editing a scene with time in mind, you know, Barry will come in and he'll watch it and he'll be like, take your time. 
you know? And and I went, the moment he says, take your time, I'm like, okay, we've allowed other things to interfere with the art. And so once he says, take your time, I'm like, okay, let me cut this scene that is the scene and not worry about how long it's going to end up being. And when you get notes from directors, is it usually like, I want this to feel more like this or, you know, the act, like the, the thing we need to focus on is this part of the story. Or is it like, I seem to remember we have a, a different take of this. And I like, like what, how specific are those notes that you're generally getting? Um, it varies. I would say mm-hmm. with Barry, there are some like, like overarching, you know, general thoughts about the entire episode. And then there'll be times where he gets very specific about, you know, he'll be like, I, if, you know, if my memory serves me right, there's a take where this happens. That's the one I want you to start with. And then we'll go from there. I would say for the most part, there's some like very specific notes and then there's some general notes. But I think when we're first sharing cuts, it's more broad strokes because uh, rough cuts are rough. <laughs> <laughs> You just, it's like, it's like you're studying for a test and you just want to get all the information out there. And so it's just, it feels a little crammed and, you know, like, cause of course, as an editor, you show your director everything. But when I do my initial passes, I take notes cause I can clearly see like, oh, this scene should come later or we could actually probably lose this scene. But you know, for that, in that initial first pass, you show them everything. So Right. People are always talking about, oh, I read there's a 200 minute cut of this movie or whatever. And you're like, no, 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 that's that's just the rough cut. That's where like every possibility is, is in there. That's not a real thing. That, that doesn't exist. That's not an actual movie. No. And also the scenes are like there in their entirety, too. You haven't like mm-hmm. really worked them out to where they're like paced where they should be. And so, yeah, like first passes can run really, really long. A showrunner friend told me that, you know, in her opinion, the editing room is where TV and film actually gets made, right? It's like all because all the decisions, everything can get radically reconsidered in an editing room in ways that people actually kind of don't always see. Like one of the things I know you can do is you can, you know, pull the audio from one take and put it into the to the visual of another without people realizing it so that they think it's all one moment. Have you had projects that radically changed in the editing room structurally or, you know, in terms of feel or whatever? I don't know if it's like a radical change, but in Moonlight, in Act 3, the way it's written is you see um, Black's mom, Paula, you see her earlier. Like you start... The, you know, the scene starts and he's immediately at the rehab facility talking to his mom. And I remember talking to Barry and saying, like, you know, I love the way in Moonlight how we just kind of drop the audience into, like, where Chiron was. No backstory or anything. You're just kind of, like, in his experience. And so I really liked the idea of him getting that call from Kevin triggering him wanting to make amends, you know? I remember pitching to Barry, like, what if we took this, move this later, that call from Kevin happens earlier, and then we're off to Miami. And he had, like, you know, because the thing I love about Barry is he always is observing and he's always processing. 
So whenever I pitch something to him, I'm like, do you love it? You hate it? Like trying to read him. And he'll like, you know, he just takes it all in. And then um, we'll go away from it. And then maybe a week later, he'll come back and be like, let's do it. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, but I I think that's the strength of his filmmaking is um, appreciating and really leaning into the collaboration of it all. And always, you know, not quick to say no, but taking what others have put in front of him and processing it. And then the thing that he always does is he'll process it and he'll always add like another layer to it that like is like, that's it. That's the idea, you know? And that's why I really, really enjoy working with him is that it doesn't feel like work. We always have such a good time. And then the work that we do, I'm always so proud of. I'm curious about, you know, maybe that's be- this is because of where I am in my own process on a on a writing project. But you know, editing, it's so iterative, and I'm sure you reach those points sometimes where you're like, if I have to look at this insert of a hand opening this door one more time, I am going to burn this place down. So when you get to those moments where you sort of can't see the project anymore because you've been looking at it so often, how do you refresh yourself? How do you keep moving forward at that moment? Um, The thing that I like to do, and I'm curious if like once it gets out there, people are going to think I'm odd, but I love to go to the section of the film that's working or that's like my most favorite section of the film. And so I remember in Moonlight, I loved to watch, I loved watching the, the opening of Act Three. Like whenever I was like, you know, because the diner scene is long and it, it took time to really, really massage those cuts. And the both actors, you know, Trevante and Andre Holland were amazing. And they gave such good performances that I knew that editing that section deserved, you know, the best of the best. And so I've really took my time with that section. But whenever I would feel like I wasn't really making any headway or, oh my gosh, I've been in this scene for so long, I would just go to the top of the act. And I I love how the act three opened. So that would just give me a little resurgence of like, this opening, eventually the diner is going to come up to the level of this opening and it's going to be great. <laughs> um, and then... I just find the little moments of joy that exist in each project and, you know, I'll watch those and then I'll have a renewed energy. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I was, I was wondering about that with Underground Railroad because just, you know, watching the first episode of that, that show, it, it is incredibly graphic and forthright about the horrors of slavery. And in my head, anyway, the idea of watching that footage again and again to try to figure out, you know, aesthetically, when is the right way to like, how do we hold this so that it's unbearable and then right at that edge, cut away to give the audience the relief. Like, it just seems like it would be a very difficult thing to have to do day after day to look at some of the scenes in even just that first episode. And there's nine more to go after that. (laughs) How did you get through that? How do you do that? I mean, you know, uh, what is your process for kind of recovering from the emotionality of your work? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, as we were working on the Underground Railroad, where our offices were located, there was actually a Black Lives Matter protest happening outside. And it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, I'm like, it's so crazy that I'm working on this show. And as I'm working on the show, I can hear um, the protest. And it was one of those things where 
I know a lot of elements of the show are going to be hard to watch. But the one thing I appreciate about Barry when he chooses to tell a certain story is he wants to keep it authentic. But the thing that he's reinventing is the perspective that it's told from. And that's one of the things that is so powerful about the Underground Railroad is even though there's trauma, there's pain, and there's often, you know, some horrific images, there's also hope, joy, light, and dignity that that are bestowed to the people that we're featuring in the story. And I think because of that perspective and also the way that Barry and also Colson have chosen to present the story of Cora, I think it makes it more digestible. And for me, there were definitely episodes, you know, the last episode, episode 101, Tennessee is tough, you know, but I think it's the resilience that the character Cora shows. I'm like, she can keep going. I can keep going. You know, it's like we made a little pact in the editing room. Like you keep on going, Cora. I can keep on going too, you know? And it's interesting too, because as an editor, I was in the cutting room, everyone else had to work remotely when the, you know, the pandemic first hit. And so I was the only one in the office. And so every day I would walk in, it's it's a huge office and it was just me in my edit bay. And so a lot of times, you know, it would just be me and, and Polly or me and Cora or me and Mabel. And it did feel like I got to really spend time with these characters. And so to me, I know they'll only exist on the screen for a lot of people, but to me, it feels like I spent the pandemic with um, these wonderful characters of the Underground Railroad. You were an assistant at Once Upon a Time, too. So what are your assistants doing to support you in your creative work? Well, I first would have to say shout out to my assistants, uh, Daniel and Israel. They're amazing. They've actually been with me. Daniel's been with me since the film I did with Jake Scott, American Woman. And Israel's been with us since If Beale Street Could Talk. He started out as our PA, and now he's our second assistant on Lion King. But yeah, they'll um, organize dailies. They'll script dailies. Daniel actually did an amazing job on the Underground Railroad. Not only was he assisting us, but he also was the editor for one of the episodes. And then he also cut all of the trailers that Barry was putting out on Twitter. Daniel did all of those, which were fantastic. One of the great things about Daniel is, you know, I did five of the 10 episodes. And so sometimes if, you know, I was getting to a point where I'm like, hey, can you just take a first pass on this for me? He would jump on, take a first pass of a scene, and then um, I'll come on and finish it. He was my right-hand man. Um, Whenever we bring anyone new on board, I definitely say like, You know, the way we work, it's like a little family. To me, the work environment should never, ever be a toxic place. Because what we do at the end of the day, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of hours. And so I want the people who are working with me to want to come into work and to want to hang out and do a good job. And so if it's a toxic environment where people are sitting in their cars, like being like, you got to go in. (laughs) You know, I don't want, I've been there. So I never, ever, ever want that for anybody else. I mean, you mentioned it's a lot of hours. A typical week of editing Underground, how many hours a week were you spending working on on the show? Early days, probably, I would say like 
50 to 60, just because I was coming in on the weekends. Because mm-hmm. wow. it's a lot of, as Barry would say, it's a, <laughs> he would watch one of the early cuts and be like, it's a lot of show joy. You have a lot of show in this episode. <laughs> and it's true. It, I mean, how, how long were those original rough cuts? They must have been, I mean, cause, I mean like the, the, the pilot's a little over an hour, right? I mean, how, yes. many, how long was its original running time when you were done with the rough cut? Do you remember? I feel like most of my episodes when they were first like assembled were about 90... 91 to 92 minutes. Mm-hmm. It was very rare that I had an episode that was under 90. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing because you're cutting these things by a third, but you still <laughs> got to keep all the story. I mean, yes. I mean, yeah. that can't only be done by tightening transitions, right? I mean, that's not the only way. I mean, uh, I mean, how do you think about that when you've got to reduce the runtime by a third and then yet keep all the key story beats and make sure that they're effectively communicated? Yeah. Oftentimes what we did is we would look at the the series as a whole and remember this is Cora's story. And so I think the mo- like every time that you you start to get away from where's Cora at, what's Cora experiencing, um you kind of say like is that important? You know, we there's some amazing supporting characters throughout the story like Royal and Caesar and the Valentine farm is just a Mingo, John Valentine. I feel like the story itself is so rich with all of these characters who each possess their own backstory. So it's like, you know, we kind of had to prioritize Cora first, but then, you know, still stay true to what the novel presented is, you know, showing the layers of humanity that existed throughout her journey. And so, yeah, at each episode, you just have to take a step back and be like, okay, we have chorus through line and she's preserved. And then how can we bring forth these other characters in a way that doesn't detract from the story we're telling about Cora, but actually enriches the experience. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Joy McMillan after this. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. 
Here's a special limited time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, Are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hey, listeners, I just wanted to take a moment to say that if you're enjoying what we do on this show, please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a minute of what we're up to here on Working. And if you'd like to be a part of what we do on Working, that's easy too. Send us an email, or even better, leave us a voicemail. Ask us for help with your big creative problems. Ask us how to stay motivated or take a risk, whatever it is. Send questions to us at working at slate.com. Or call us at 304-933-9675. All right, let's get back to Isaac's conversation with Joy McMillan. I want to go backwards in time a little bit to Beale Street because you did mention um, the scene between uh, Fani, played by Stephen James, and uh, Daniel, played by Brian Tyree Henry, uh, earlier on. And it is actually my single favorite scene of oh. 2018. And you edited <laughs> it. So, so, uh, so like... <laughs> Beyond just telling you that, I just think it's a truly masterful moment oh. in the movie. I, I wanted to ask you about how y'all approached that scene because it's very different rhythmically from the rest of the film. It starts in one place and ends somewhere radically different. I mean, it almost feels to me like like Daniel grabs hold of the movie there and then won't let it go until he's done talking. I mean, how did you all approach editing that and what were some of the challenges of putting that scene together? Yeah, it's it's one of those scenes where, you know, as I'm getting the footage in, I'm like, oh, it's a lot of footage. <laughs> um, but I did appreciate the approach that Barry and James took with that scene because, you know, if you look at the first section, it's very traditional coverage. You know, we have close-ups, we have medium close-ups, and we have wides, and everything is on sticks. Um, and so, or sorry, if people don't know what sticks is, a tripod. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the camera's not moving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Camera's locked down. And so, in, in putting the first section together, you know, I have this very traditional coverage. And then one of the things I loved when, when Barry was describing the scene, it was like, he's like, you know, you meet someone on the street that you haven't seen in a really long time. And so you're first conversation is, you know, like, like, how are you doing, man? You're like, oh, I'm good. You know, you say all the good things that are going on with you and you, you know, you connect. And then 
as you're going through the conversation, you know, someone says like, how you, how you doing, man? And it's kind of like you're slowly but surely letting your guard down. And one of the things that's so masterful about Brian Tyree's performance is that you see this very jovial personality slowly let his guard down and allow you to see what's really underneath. And so one of the things that was cool about the um, the way they shot it is that, you know, very traditional coverage in the first section. And then the back half, they, you know, they put the camera. I don't actually know the, the technical term for it, but it's just kind of like a glider, I think is what it's called. And Barry talks about the chemistry between two actors when you allow the camera to flow in between them instead of being like, we're just going to be on Fani for this section or we're just going to be on Daniel for this section. But both actors knowing that the camera is floating between them, it just brings this like kind of like this electric, you know, kind of magnetic chemistry between the two actors where they both are so immersed in their characters that for a moment it doesn't feel like a film set you know it feels like two friends catching up and so um in the first section when I put it together you know it's very traditional coverage you know a lot of jokes back and forth and then on the second section it was very careful edits that it didn't disrupt the audience's experience because you know the moment that you notice my cut is the moment that you're now reminded that you're in a film and I think the power of that scene is that you as an audience member you feel like you're sitting down at the table having a beer smoking a cigarette with these two people and discovering how they're really doing amazing when you are involved in a long <laughs> process of making something collaboratively, conflict is going to arise. It just yeah. happens, right? <laughs> like, how do you like to navigate conflict, you know, in a productive way? So it's not that you're totally self-effacing, but it's also, you know, not all that ego. You know, how, how do you navigate conflict to get to kind of the best end result? It's interesting because I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Barry and I also met in film school. And so Barry, our producers, Adela Romanski, Mark Syriac, James Laxon, and myself, we all went to film school together. So we've known each other for a while. I won't date myself, but we've known each other for a while. And so it really does feel like we are a family. And so, you know, there's personal and then there's professional. But one of the things that we've always loved is the ability to make films together. It's It usually always feels like us against them. It's never us against each other, you know? <laughs> and I think the thing that we're always fighting for is preservation of the initial concept. Because if anyone's ever done a project in Hollywood, you know, you start out with a drama and you end up with a romantic comedy. You know? right, right. <laughs> That's a bit extreme. But it is, you have a lot of higher ups who try, I don't, I don't want to say that they try to influence the film, but they, they kind of want to make it um, palatable. 
is the best way to say it. And I will say a lot of the work that Barry chooses to tell, it's very in your face. Um, and it's also very precise and um, his artistic expression. And so oftentimes it can at sometimes be a little scary for people to take it on and being like, okay, we're going to present this to the world. I hope they like it, you know? And so I think one of the things that has been great about the different studios we've been fortunate to work with is that above all, they preserve Barry's vision, you know? And sometimes we'll have to take a few runs at them, (laughs) you know? And sometimes we'll have to present things a little bit differently. But one of the things that we've never, ever really had to do is compromise our vision, you know? And I think one of the things that ultimately ends up is that the studios realize that if they trust in Barry's vision, the end product is always, always, always so stellar. Well, Joy McMillan, thank you so much for joining us today to uh, talk oh, about your process. thanks for having me. <laughs> this was fun. <laughs> Isaac, I always learn something when I listen to our show. Seriously. But you know what? I really learned something this week. I really allowed myself to stop and think about the work of a film editor, which I have to be honest, I'm not sure that's something I've ever considered before. Well, I'm warning you, once you start considering it, it actually becomes kind of hard to stop because films are really shaped in the editing process, which take you use, why, how you connect the ideas, the transitions from moment to moment. It's all right there. And it, of course, affects everything else. Like, I'm not going to name names here, but a friend of mine wrote for a show with this this really legendary actor in it. And she said, oh, well, everyone knows he does too much stuff like during the take itself. And then you just have to edit through it to get to the performance. But if you do that, the performance is extraordinary. Right. So in that case, how we think about that actor and his work, it's actually completely a result of editing decisions. There's so much to talk about here. One thing that I found really striking was when you mentioned the potential for fatigue enjoys work, right? She's sitting there watching several takes of the same shot and trying to decide between them. It made me think of how I often rewrite a sentence over and over again, even in a piece that's only 800 words. There should be a term for that, right? The specific conditions of creative work that are actually just kind of boring and brutal and repetitive. Yeah, totally. And, you know, maybe in honor of this, uh, I have my copy edits coming later this week. So so I'll be thinking a lot about that with little teeny punctuation marks. We should come up with a term like, uh, uh, I don't know. So it's like creative drudgery. So maybe we should call it crudgery. I don't know. That, that doesn't sound good. Do you have any good ideas? <laughs> crudgery sounds like something an English person would eat for breakfast. Indeed. indeed, indeed. <laughs> I, but I really enjoyed Joy's particular advice for how to push through that morass right? To find some joy or satisfaction in the work in like a piece that you've done well, right? That she would look back and say like, yeah, this was good. That'll power me through. I know it's such good advice. I was like, oh, I'm going to start doing that, you know, because we do reach that point where you're just like hitting your head against a brick wall over and over and over again. But to do something 
that both replenishes your ego a little bit and reconnects you to the work. When you think about it, it's going to kind of also reconnect you to those first principles about the work that are clear when it's when it's really cooking. And I have to imagine it'll help you figure out the way through. It's it's really smart. I'm going to start doing it, too. Another takeaway from this particular conversation for me was the importance of mentorship. Joy fell in love with editing as a pursuit when she was still so very young. You know, she was uh, in high school. I find that absolutely astonishing. So these chance encounters that established artists have with much younger people actually can really determine what happens in their chosen field. I think that's a really important thing to remember that A, you can, when you are still very young, know what it is that you want to do with your life. And B, you can, once you've amassed a little power within your field, sort of pay it forward in ways that prove really significant. Yes, absolutely. I feel like that's really important and something that I've not that I have amassed a lot of power in my field or anything, but something that I think about as my career is is progressing now about like how I can do that more in the future. I will also say mentorship can take a lot of forms, right? Like I've had very formal mentors. Like I went to graduate school. I studied with this person. They had this influence on my work and my practice. I can point to it. But then there's also stuff like you know, much less formal than that. Like when I was in my 20s, I happened to befriend a famous novelist. And that friendship is part of the reason why I transferred my focus from being a theater director to being a writer. You know, it's like mentorship can take a lot of different forms. And it's it's about both the less established and the more established, not always younger and older, less established and more established person, just sort of being open to those moments happening and taking advantage of them when they arise, I think. Yeah, you never know. Chance, that's the That's the whole thing about chance encounter. You never know yeah, exactly. what will happen. Yeah, you have to be open to them. Well, I'm going to start paying attention more closely now. Good. That's our show for this week. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You'll never miss an episode. And I'm going to give you one final Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, and Dini Lavery's new show, Big Mood, Little Mood. But I also hope you would just like to support the work that we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Joy McMillan for being our guest and to our producer for this week, Morgan Flannery. Morgan, it's great to have you back. Make sure to tune in next week for a conversation between June Thomas and journalist Leon Krause. Until then, get back to work. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.